Good morning, everyone. Good to see everyone. I uh, will apologize in advance for my voice is a little bit uh, foggy. Uh, spent the uh, Thanksgiving holidays uh, feeding this cold. And, uh, you know, I've heard the theory, you know, feed a cold, starve a fever and that kind of thing. And I don't know if that works or not, but it sure is a lot more fun to feed the cold. And my, my appetite was severely curbed over Thanksgiving. I think I only ate half a pie. And, um, but... Uh, Doing fine. Glad that you're here. Uh, it's good to see uh, so many here. Actually, I expected uh, more people to still be out of town, but we're thankful that you are uh, here to worship with us today. Uh, I know that on Thursday, uh, we were all thankful for a lot of things, as we ought to be every day. And one of the things that I'm sure that uh, all of us are very grateful for is the fact that we live in a free country. Uh, the fact that we live in a country where uh, we are uh, free to go, where we choose to go and to live as we choose to live and have some say in uh, our leaders and, and many other things. I wouldn't enjoy living in China, uh, especially right now. Uh, I wouldn't enjoy living in North Korea. I wouldn't enjoy living in Iran. I'm blessed, and you and I are both blessed, all blessed, to be living where we live and so thankful that we are able to do that and that we have the freedom to be here to worship today. Many people don't have that freedom or if they do meet for worship, they do so under duress or in danger and here we are able to do it uh, quite openly and unharmed. What a, what a great blessing that is. These political freedoms are such a great blessing and, and we ought to be thankful for them. And you look at the New Testament, you find that it has a lot to say about freedom also, but it's not political freedom. Because the people to whom the New Testament documents were first addressed, such as the first readers of Peter's letter, did not have political freedom. None of the people addressed in the Bible had political freedom. Uh, all of them in the New Testament era lived under the domination of Rome. Nobody knew what it was to be free. Nobody knew what it was to have a representative government. Nobody knew what it was to vote. Nobody knew what it was to have a say uh, in how they were able to live. That was determined for them. And yet, because they were Christians, they were free in a far greater sense. They were free in Christ. And that's the kind of freedom that the New Testament talks about. They were free because they were free from sin, because they'd been forgiven by Jesus and the whole, the bondage of sin had been broken. They talked about freedom because they were free from the slavery of, of trying to save themselves by keeping the law, that, that great burden, that taskmaster that Paul talked about in his letter to the Galatians, because now they knew that they were redeemed by grace through faith. And they had freedom from the fear of death, because they knew it was only temporary. It was a world in which the average person didn't live past the age of 40. And yet they didn't look at that as a, a fearful thing. They were able to look at it as a temporary thing because they knew that eventually they would live forever in the presence of their Lord and their Savior. And that's why Peter can say in 1 Peter 2.16, live as free people or as people who are free, live as servants of God. That's how we're supposed to be living every day, as free people who are servants of God. 
Now, other New Testament writers reflect this same theme, especially Paul. Uh, let me give you some examples of that. In Galatians 2, in verse 4, Paul is describing people who wanted to limit the freedom of Gentile believers by requiring them to be circumcised before they could be saved, or at least by requiring them to be circumcised in order to be fully accepted into the Christian community. And that was a kind of bondage. That was the sort of barrier that they were putting up. And here's what Paul says about people like this. He describes them as false brothers who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. He said they're, they've come to spy out our freedom. They want to make slaves of us again. They want to enslave us to the law. And then in chapter 5 and verse 1 of Galatians, he says, For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. When he wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, he said, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might save some, that I might win more of them. And then in James chapter 1, verse 25, James calls the gospel the perfect law the law of liberty. It's not that law that enslaves. It's not that law that binds. It's not that law that uh, makes you a slave to that, that feeling that somehow you can never measure up because he says it's the law of liberty. It's the law that sets you free from all of that. But the New Testament also links freedom with a topic that might surprise us because it may seem like the two don't match very well. Freedom and submission. Freedom and submission. I think in our minds, submission sort of tends to suggest a form of slavery. It can suggest a form of servitude. And so how do the two correlate? And yet Peter says in 1 Peter 2.16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You see, here's Peter's concern, I think, that some people would think, well, I'm free in Christ. That means I can do whatever I want to do, right? We still have people who believe that. We have people who teach that, that, that once you're under the grace of God, that therefore you can't do anything that's really going to jeopardize your relationship with God. So you're pretty much free to do whatever you want to do. And some folks do. And think that somehow that's okay. But we're not free to do what's wrong. We are free to live out our service to God. And we're not to use our freedom, he says, as a cover-up or a pretext to do evil. We're not to use that freedom in saying, well, because I'm free, then I can, I can do this. I can do that which is not right because I'm free. That just doesn't work. That's an abuse of the concept of grace. So that's why in this section of the letter, Peter says three times, be subject. And when I say this sub, uh, section of the letter, I'm talking about everything from uh, chapter 2 and verse 13 down through chapter 3 and verse 7. But look at uh, chapter 2 and verse 13, first of all. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he specifies various levels of government from the emperor or literally king on down. The king, to those who are under him, to those who are under him, those who are under him. He says, be subject to them. 
In verse 18, he says, Servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, you might have thought he would have said, well, if you have a, a kind master, or you have a master who's thoughtful, you have a master who treats you well, then be subject to them. But he says, no, not, not just to them, but also to the overbearing and the unjust, to those who treat you poorly, to those who treat you wrongly. And then in chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, in other words, they're not Christians, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. That must have been hard for a lot of women to hear. That must be hard for a lot of women to hear today. But that's what Peter says. Be subject to your own husbands, particularly those who aren't in Christ so that they will be so won over by your respectful and pure behavior that they themselves will turn to Christ. What's Peter's point? What's he getting at by telling us to be subject over and over? He wants Christians, whether we live in a free society or not, to fulfill what he said in chapter 2 and verse 12. So back up one verse before where our reading begins today. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is the non-believers, keep your conduct among those non-believers honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So as we are living in this world, and it's a world of unbelief, and as we're living in that world of unbelief, we have to think about how we impact that world. Now, we're going to say more about this when we get to chapter 3, but Peter does not allow Christians the luxury of retreat. He does not allow us a fortress mentality. He does not allow us to wall ourselves off from the world. We are to be in that world. We're not to partake of the, the ways of that world, but we've got to be in that world and influencing that world and always thinking about what we do and how what we do impacts people who don't believe. And that's what he's talking about here. Keep your conduct among those unbelievers honorable so that when they see your good, uh, your good lives, your good works, they'll glorify God on the day of vis visitation. Some of them will even be won over. They'll even be won over to Christ because they see the goodness in your lives. You see, what he's doing is he's fleshing out for us from chapter 2 and verse uh, 13 through chapter 3 and verse 7, he's fleshing out what honorable conduct looks like. What does honorable conduct look like? In the eyes of an unbelieving world, particularly in Peter's day in the first century, it looks like the things he's talking about. It looks like being subject to those governing institutions. It, it looks like being subject to your masters, if that's your station in life. It looks like being subject to one another. It looks like being subject to your husband. That's what it looks like. That's what he's doing. He's describing how that looks. You see, what he's telling believers is we cannot flout the conventions of society and expect non-believers to respect us that wouldn't fly in the first century world in which Peter lived. It won't fly today. We can't just say, I'm going to go my own way, do my own thing, 
It doesn't matter what anybody thinks. We've got to care about what people think. It doesn't mean that what they think governs how we live. It's what God thinks that governs how we live. But we still have to be concerned about how we go about living the ways that God has taught us to live. That means that we're going to sometimes have to adopt the uncomfortable position of submission. There are going to be times we have to do that, whether it's easy or not, whether it's comfortable or not. And sometimes it is uncomfortable, isn't it? Look at verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You know something I've learned in traveling to different parts of the world and talking to people from different parts of the world is that nobody likes their government. They don't. Nobody likes their government. They really don't. I used to think it was just an American thing because we were free to complain about ours, and, and we do. But what I found is that nobody likes their government. There's always something wrong with it. I remember a number of years ago when I was in South Korea, and that's such an orderly society. Uh, one of the amazing things when you're in South Korea, if you're standing at a traffic signal and, and the light is red and you, you can't cross, you can't walk, okay, but there's no cars coming. Nobody crosses anyway. That's not what we would do, is it? We'd go, Nobody coming? We take off. They stand there, wait for the light. Such an orderly society. But then I heard a news report a couple of days later that their parliament, that they'd had a fist fight in their parliament. And, and the people were all angry and upset about that. You know, that and I, I was asking one of the Koreans, I said, does that kind of thing happen very often? All the time, they said. Yeah. All the time. That kind of stuff goes on. And they begin complaining about their government. Nobody likes their government. I don't think people liked their government when Peter wrote. I don't think these Jews liked living under the domination of Rome. I don't think anybody in the Mediterranean world liked living under the domination of Rome. But yet Peter says to fear God and honor the emperor. Who was the emperor? Nero. Now at the time Peter wrote this, Nero was doing a pretty decent job as emperor. He was a, he was a pretty good ruler by ancient standards. But before very long, in just a few years' time, he became a megalomaniac, and he began to viciously persecute Christians, and he eventually ordered the execution of Peter and Paul. He ordered the execution of this one who said, honor the emperor. He ordered his, his execution, and yet Peter still says what he says. You see, they weren't to honor him because he was a megalomaniac. They weren't to honor him because he was a pagan. They weren't to honor him because he was, I don't know, what's the nice word for it? Moron. They weren't to honor him for any of that. They were to honor him because of who he was, not what he was. They were to honor him because he represented order in society. And listen to what Paul says in Romans 13 and verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Now keep in mind what we just said. Nobody likes their government, and yet here's Paul saying every government that exists has been instituted by God. And we kind of go, wait a minute. Does that mean God was in charge of the last election? And does that mean God is in charge of what's going on in Russia and Ukraine? Does that, does that mean 
What does that mean? It doesn't mean that. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means that God has ordained that there must be order in society. And the only way to avoid chaos is to have governments. And sometimes those governments are lousy. But even when they are, you have to respect the fact that they are the folks in charge. And for Christians, that means trying to live and get along. That's just what it means. You remember what in that reading at the beginning of the service from 1 Timothy 2? That we were to offer up prayers for kings and all who are in high places. Why? So that we can lead quiet and peaceable lives, godly and respectful in every way. Not so we can run the government. We're not trying to do that. Not so we can overthrow the government. We're not trying to do that. But just so that we can live our lives in Christ. Live them the way that God would have us to do. And be left alone in that respect. To have the freedom that we do enjoy. To be able to lead our lives in the way that God would have us to live. It doesn't mean that God approves of all governments. It means that he ordains that there be governments and that there not be chaos. So by submitting to those governments, and Christians are respecting an institution that God himself has ordained. <clears throat> now, that naturally does not supersede our loyalty to God, does it? You just think back in the Old Testament. You remember those Hebrew midwives in the book of Exodus? Pharaoh had ordered them, you know, when, when the Hebrew women give birth to a male child, kill it. Now, here's, here's the king telling you, Every time one of these male babies is born, kill it. And these two Hebrew midwives, you know, of all the people, all the people among the Hebrews who were in that, that bondage in Egypt, we know the names of very few, but we know their names. Shifra and Pua. And they looked at each other and they said, no way. No way, we're not going to do that. So when Pharaoh called them to account, he says, the Hebrews are still multiplying. Why haven't you done what I told you? And they just said, I tell you what they did, folks. They lied. Okay? They lied. And this isn't a, a, an approval of all lying by any means. But they weren't going to kill those babies. And they just said, well, these Hebrew, mid, uh, Hebrew women, they're stronger than Egyptian women. And we just get there a minute late and it's all over with. We can't do anything about it. But they did not honor his order. They did not fulfill his command. Remember Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Remember them uh, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar set up that image and, and called for that big ceremony? And he said, everybody bowed out of the image, and they didn't go to the party. And then people told on them, and they said, you know, these guys didn't do what you said to do. And he called them in, why didn't you do that? And he said, I can't do that. We worship one God. And he said, you've got to bow down. Because if you don't, I'm going to throw you in the furnace. And they said, well, you know, our God is able to deliver us if that's what you do. But even if he doesn't, no, we will not bow down. And Daniel himself, later under King Darius, when Darius foolishly wrote that decree that nobody could pray to anyone except him, for a period of 30 days. And Daniel knew. The Bible says that. When Daniel knew that the order had been written. He went to his house. And he went to that upper room. And he opened the windows toward Jerusalem. Just like he always did. Three times a day. 
And he bowed down and he prayed to the God of heaven. The state is not our ultimate ruler. And whenever it tries to be, we have to obey God rather than men. But it isn't just government. Look what else Peter says. He says, honor everyone. I don't know about you, but to me, that's one of the hardest things that Peter wrote. Honor everyone. I, you know, I know I, sometimes going through the day, I just find some folks that don't seem real honorable. Do you, do you ever run anybody not honorable? Or that are hard to honor. Let me put it that way. They're just hard to honor. But he says, honor everyone. And then he says, love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood of believers. Love the body of Christ. Love your fellow Christians. Do you love, do you love the brotherhood? Do you pray for it? Do you do what you can to be of service to other believers and to try to lift their load? That, that's what Peter's talking about. Do those things, he says. Honor everybody. Fear God. Love the brotherhood. Honor the emperor. You see, submission is not antithetical to our Christian freedom. It may seem like it in our minds. that Submission and freedom don't go hand in hand. But the fact is they do. That our submission is part of our Christian freedom. We are so free in Christ that we are even free to submit to others in order to bring glory to God. We are free to submit ourselves to other people in order to bring glory to God, in order to keep from casting reflection on God and on his people. You know, in days past, you used to hear a lot of times when invitations were offered publicly that the minister would say, if you've brought reproach on the church, then you should come and ask for prayers. And frequently people would. They'd say, I brought reproach on the church. And that's a noble, a noble recognition if you have brought reproach on the church. But, but what's even more important than that is we're bringing reproach on God. See, that's what Peter's wanting these people to avoid. It's what he's wanting us to avoid. Don't bring reproach on your creator. Don't bring reproach on your savior by living in such a way that other people are going to say, I don't know about them. I don't know about that. I don't see anything admirable there. I don't see that, I don't see that Christ or Christian faith has changed those folks for the better. Not one bit. He says, don't live that way. Live in such a way that people will recognize that your behavior is honorable. Submission is not antithetical to freedom. It's part of it. Anything we can do to appear honorable in the sight of non-believers, we should do. And that may well work a hardship on us. That may well work a hardship on us. But it did on Jesus too. And he's our example. That's what Peter's going to get to in verse 21. To this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might 
win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul was a free man. But he said, I submit. I become as all things to all people. Why? For the sake of the kingdom. For the sake of the gospel. For the sake of winning them. Now Peter never said that any of this was going to be easy. It isn't. But when you find submission a hard thing, just remember your motivation for it. 1 Peter 2 and verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It's the will of God. And it has a positive influence on people outside of Christ. So live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And the beginning of that is submitting yourself to the gospel of Jesus. Confessing who he is as God's son. And turning away from sin. And being baptized into him. Submitting to that. Being buried with him. So that you can receive a new life. And then to live that life. In submission to God. And as needed in submission to others. But living it as free. If you're ready to do that. Come and tell us while we stand together please.